Ladies, gentlemen, and ethereal beings from beyond the spirit realm, welcome to the human energy field. As always, I'm your host, Henry, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Jamie. How are you doing tonight, Jamie? You all right, mate? Doing very well, thank you, Henry. Very pleased to be here again, um, talking about two of my favourite subjects. Yeah, well, you're going to be doing a lot of talking uh, for this episode. Um, we want to focus on the occult in role-playing games, at least for the first hour or so of discussion, and how these things are intertwined, and how they relate to each other. We're going to move on later on to our film segment and our music segment as usual. Um, so look forward to those. Uh, I'm getting a lot better with these cold opens, I'll be honest. I'm, I'm feeling more comfortable opening cold and going straight in. I'm, I'm uh, doing a lot better at them. No, it sounds, sounds all good. Sounds good. Don't let me stop your floor. <laughs> and we've got some more technical improvements as well. I've upgraded my microphone and... Uh, Hopefully, hopefully the quality is going to improve noticeably episode on episode. So, guys, keep an ear out for that. Um, we'll upgrade the software and stuff as well as we go along. So, we're hoping to just have a more professional experience and a more rounded experience as we release these and as we get the hang of what we're doing as we get off the ground. Um, so, first of all, I mean, I'm going to honestly, I'm going to let you take the reins a bit for this episode because uh, this is something I'll defer to you on. Um, so, what made you decide this is something? that we can get an hour's worth of discussion out of and what would be the main kind of um, jumping off point for something like this, do you think? I think the, the main reason that this is such a hot potato for, um, for, for a role-playing style discussion is even casual role-players and, and, and all players as well will have heard of buzzwords like the satanic panic and they'll be aware that a lot of role-playing games have in them spells, magicians, and spellcasters. I mean, by its very nature, role-playing game is intertwined with that kind of activity, you know, spellcasting, summoning, and all that kind of stuff, from its very genesis, which is D&D. So I think we can look at it from a few different points of view. We can look at it historically as the presentation of the occult has developed in the RPG industry over time. And we can also look about um, snapshots of maybe how it's affected the industry outside of the gaming table um, with regards to the, the aforementioned Satanic Panic and uh, various other religious groups and, and uh, opinions, especially near the beginning of role-playing game, you know, in the late 70s and early 80s, that was much more of a thing, whereas we don't really worry about that right now. But So I think there's plenty of things to be able to to throw out onto the, onto the table. Cool. Well, let's start there then, shall we? Let's start with the Satanic Panic. Do you want to tell me a little bit about where that came from, uh, who, who was the sort of genesis of it, and why why it came into existence. What was the Satanic Panic? Okay, so I'm going to preface this with um, with the knowledge that, that I'm, I'm not an American, so I didn't really experience this, and I'm not old enough to experience this firsthand. So I think you would get a lot more um, precise information um, from somebody who was around at the time and somebody who was in the same geographic location. Having that been said, I have read a lot about it in you know magazines and books and, and various articles. So the Satanic Panic um, was essentially the Christian, well, you know, extreme Christian response to the Dungeons and Dragons game in America. Um, what you had is you had a whole bunch of kids who for the very first time were engaged in a hobby that was mentioning things like demons and devils and summoning and magic users and, you know, clerics and, and all of these 
these weird buzzwords that had not really been bandied around um, kind of kids' uh, leisure time before. And especially in certain parts of America, and especially at that time, as I've mentioned, you know, we're talking about the mid to late 70s at the beginning of this, um, there were a lot more people who were more straight-laced and were a lot more worried about this. Um, people who aren't really immersed in this kind of, you know, role-playing Kind of history and industry will be able to get a little insight into this because I think it's very similar to the way that a lot of metal bands were were trapped in America, um, and there are some you know there are some famous court cases and, and and things like that. So I mean anyone who's familiar with the effect that you know metal music has had on on the populace and the fear around all of that kind of thing, it, that is to an element. Um, now obviously Dungeons and Dragons you know was quite popular back then. But it never really reached the heights that you know were were, were made by the the metal bands and those kind of rockers at that time. So it's a much it's a much smaller thing, but it did have huge in, uh, impact on the RPG industry. So you've got this sort of um, Christian right who are reacting. It, it was a reactionary response more than anything else, wasn't it? Just to without really educating themselves on on the details of what was going on, they just saw it for, took it at face value and decided it was against their beliefs. More or less, absolutely, and I mean, you, you've you've got to bear in mind that I mean, these these reactions were had to, as I've said, music, literature, hobbies, you know, state of dress, you know, this extreme um, conservative viewpoint will have been easy to demonise everything, and I think Dungeons and Dragons, I mean, it, it even sounds, you know, if you hadn't heard that title before, it sounds a bit odd, it sounds a bit dark, um, so no wonder that it was easy prey for these. You know, for these panic mongers to go through the press and especially through the churches, and there were some high-profile cases of, of individuals who had either hurt themselves or caused harm to other people by connecting themselves to this hobby. Um, now, obviously, these were fringe individuals. Um, you know, nobody really connected to to any of the major companies or game designers, and you're always going to get people who will abuse um, a, a medium or, or a hobby um, because they're just a little unstable or had their own issues um, and they made huge big um, kind of prime cases which only helped to fuel this satanic panic in America in the, the late 70s and early 80s um, so much so that even literature was distributed in order to warn parents against the you know perspective um, demonization of their you know their children by you know role-playing groups and, and dungeon masters who would um, tell them that if you know if their cleric reached level nine then all of a sudden they would have the power to, you know, kind of put curses on their parents and all this kind of stuff. Um, so I think, it, yeah, it's, it's a mixture of the fact that the hobby was very new and the fact that there were people out there who were, who were willing to literally demonize anything. Um, but what's really interesting from a, an RPG uh, historian's point of view was the effect that this satanic panic had on Dungeons & Dragons and then some, some of the earlier releases. So what we have is Dungeons & Dragons in its original incarnation was a lot more heavy-handed with devils and, and demons, and then they made a slight uh, shift as they progressed into the, the kind of later editions to almost cut out that um, that almost biblical demons and devils and angels. They renamed a lot of it. They shifted it. They did more work in creating the outer planes, which just created you know nine levels of uh, not, not not quite hell, but you know there was hell, and there was kind of light realms, dark realms, and they kind of shifted themselves away from this um, black and white, so to speak, and, and made it a little bit more fantastical. 
So tie this down for me a little bit, if you if you wouldn't mind. Are we talking second edition, AD and D? We talk coming into third edition. When no, no, sort of time period long long period? before that. So we're talking about drifting from a kind of early in first edition into second edition. A lot of it was dropped. Right. Okay. Because um, before then, uh, there was I guess it wasn't famous enough to have received any of these reactions. So they were just going along with what they were doing. Right? I think when when they first created the game. Um, it, they were happy to put in demons and devils and magic users could summon you know the various arch demons of hell and all this kind of thing and even though that did continue to exist yeah yeah that, that did continue to exist throughout the game it was certainly pushed onto a, a, a back foot um as the game became much more popular and you know the print runs were becoming much higher and everything just as a kind of self-protection mode i think um and don't, don't get me wrong it wasn't removed entirely you know you still had monster summoning you still had you know these dark realms and everything but it was just it was shifted slightly away from what people would instantly recognize as potentially satanic into what could be argued was um the realm of fantasy so i think they, they kind of did that as a, as a response um, but it didn't take long for the RPG industry to to have a backlash against that and for games in the 80s to come out that really dealt with... Um, I'll use the supernatural as, as, a, as a catch-all umbrella because it's not all just about you know Satan worship and, and all that kind of devils and demons, but the, you know, the supernatural element of ghosts and you know psychics and all that kind of stuff, which was kind of wrapped up in that. Um, there was a lot more games came out when the industry had kind of been around a lot longer and had matured and, and developed. And even those games yeah, came in for a lot of stick in the early days. Uh, Palladium Books came out with a um, quite a dark game called Beyond the Supernatural, which was um, kind of a Call of Cthulhu-esque investigatory game, but it was wrapped up in a lot of very dark imagery and, you know, quite nasty monsters. You know, it wasn't these fantastical beasts that had come out of the Monsters Manual. These were more akin to the kind of things you would see in a, you know, Hellblazer comic and, you know, that kind of, you know, these dark kind of horror comics. So, awesome. yeah. What's that like to play? Beyond the Supernatural is called. Is it, is it any good? Is it worth it? I mean, uh, it, it, yeah, I really like it. Without going on a huge tangent, it's um, it's one of Palladium Games books, so it, it uses their their house system, which is Used for you know Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and Rifts and the Palladium Fantasy game and Recon and all of these other games, um, Ninjas and Super Spies. Um, so the the system is basically like a D and D clone, um, but it, it's yeah it's it's fairly good. It's a it's quite a quite a good early dark forerunner to games that would come out like Dark Conspiracy and, and things like that. But I mean the granddaddy of the the horror role playing games obviously was Call of Cthulhu, so I think that that had a lot of effect on, on Beyond the Supernatural and things like that. And Call of Cthulhu first edition came out when? Put me on the spot here, but it was very early. Uh, I'm going to say early eighties. Um, it was in my mind. I always have Dungeons and Dragons, Call of Cthulhu, and Traveller as the three pillars of, of early role playing. So I mean, you know, Chaosium were, were were releasing Call of Cthulhu quite early. On. I'm going to go out there and say about eighty two, eighty three. You know, I could Google it, of course, and there'll be people who can Google it, but. Um, yeah, I would say you know mid mid eighties, so around then I think. So Chaosium have been dabbling in the occult role playing game kind of world for a while now because they've got quite a few um, quite a few books that have come out in that sort of vein, haven't they? They've done a few things like Nephilim and, and other games to that to that degree. Yeah, I I wondered how long it would take for us to get around to Nephilim, um, and and that was a, a game published by Chaosium, and I think that to me. It's, it's the first role-playing game that came out 
that was based on what I would call real occult knowledge rather than kind of very fantastical um, kind of uh, side of magic. Because what you've got to remember is, I've, I've mentioned this before, but the, the magic system in Dungeons and Dragons was essentially lifted from the uh, fantasy literature of Jack Vance, um, the way that magicians memorize their spells and cast them and even the names of some spells. And it's not until we get to games like Call of Cthulhu and, and then eventually games like Nephilim, where you've got men yeah, and or women, um, you know, drawing circles and using, you know, books of ancient lore and sacrifices and things that are, have more relation to, you know, the golden bow than they do with Jack Vance. So you get into a, a real magical element. But I think it's worth saying that I think Call of Cthulhu always got off a little bit more lightly because it was so entrenched in what was uh, absolute fiction. It was H.P. Lovecraft's fiction. And even though H.P. Lovecraft himself um, was probably very well versed in the you know, magical beliefs of, of various ancient cultures and subcultures, of course he was, and that drifted into his writing and then that drifted into the game. Um, Spellcasting in Call of Cthulhu and magic itself was always really the domain of the NPC or the bad guys. Um, it, it may have changed over the time and, and I think it's become much more common for investigators in Call of Cthulhu to cast spells, but at the beginning um, learning and casting spells was a real detriment to your sanity, so it wasn't something you could do very much of um, without going insane, which I guess is the, 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 the final um, result of any Call of Cthulhu investigator if he doesn't die first. It's really the classic game, isn't it? That yeah, absolutely. Um, and it and it is a horror game, but it, it doesn't fall into this occult um, level of of role playing that I think some later games did. Um, and to go to go back to Nephilim, I think you know I've forgotten the guy who it was. It was written alongside um, somebody who was really well versed in these you know hermetic um, theosophical ideas. And you know, it mentioned a lot of these these real world beliefs that were then mixed in with the game in order to create like this tapestry of of, of fantasy and reality that mixed together. Um, and I think that was a really brave thing to do. But by that point, you know, a lot of that panic had died down. So you can you get a lot more role playing games now that will draw on real religious and occult practices as the basis for their magic systems specifically in regards to hermeticism if, if if i wanted to role play something that involved hermetic practices or esotericism where would i where would i begin with that oh i mean i think um the first one that comes to mind would be white wolf's original mage the ascension role-playing game um, the very society that those um mages are from is the the order of hermes so it goes back to that original that hermetic idea um obviously the game is wide enough to have practitioners of various other magic systems whether it be the dream speakers who are kind of first nations kind of more shaman shamanistic um practices or you know the euthanatos which is kind of more um, ancient hindi and, and all all sorts of various things that are that are wrapped up in that um you know cult of ecstasy you know like drug magic and all that kind of stuff um but the 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 core element to that which came out of Ars Magica um because Mage the Ascension is essentially just a modern version of the game Ars Magica which was the Lion Rampart White Wolf game by uh, Mark Reinhagen and Jonathan Tweet 
um, which was actually part of the reason Mark Reinhagen actually got together with the guys at White Wolf to create Vampire Masquerade was because of the success of his medieval magic game, um, Ars Magica, um, which really goes deep into genuine medieval alchemistic kind of beliefs. So it took it took those whole ideas that were believed at the time, you know, that whole kind of John Dee-esque um, ideas and, and put that into the magic system. So that as we drag that forward into the modern day, we, we get a lot more kind of golden dawn, you know, order of the various other things um, by the time we get the Meiji Ascension. So we get that real hermetic viewpoint from the Order of Hermes in, in Meiji Ascension. I think would be the first one that would, that would come to mind. Going back to sort of 15th century Italy, when the things like the Lesser Key of Solomon were being written and, and kind of coming into prominence during that kind of occult renaissance in that period, and then moving forward from there was really when people had this idea about um, listing these uh, princes and, and kings and dukes and this kind of thing and having the idea of you can summon their powers and harness them for your, for, for your own gain and this monetary gain or, or lust or whatever it might be. Yeah, I mean, obviously, without without getting too historical into it, those, those concepts and those ideas go way back, especially in, you know, kind of very early kind of Judaism and proto-Christianity and, you know, a lot of these um, things that were around at the same time as these Gnostic ideas that come into it. So, um, but yeah, I think what we would class as um, demonology per se, yeah, definitely was was more of a later uh, development. And that's when you get to these kind of 16th century and 17th century um, alchemists and occultists and you know, people that were starting to worship angels and demons and all this kind of stuff. So. Um, which which has now found its way. It's very common now, I think, in in role playing games. I mean, you, you only need to look at the some of the core classes for for D and D that exist at the minute. I mean, you have warlocks. Um, I mean, the very the very idea of a warlock is you know somebody who's made a pact, a dark pact with a being. Um, so I mean, to have that as one of the core classes in D and D now just shows how far we've come that that isn't shied away from and that's not worried about because it, it, the warlock is a far distant character class from the magic user in terms of tone so as i say we go from that vancing idea all the way through to this faustian idea by the time we get to the warlock yeah i like that it's almost become um what's the word i'm looking for like i I think um, it's become diluted because i think that's it yeah because i think people are, are the internet has done a lot of things to make people a lot more aware about different you know, religious and magical practices, and you know, we have a lot more um, open communication with people who are practicing, you know, Wiccans or pagans, or you know, that is that isn't looked down upon or sideways upon like it may have used to have been a few decades ago. You know, we have we have people who are overtly um, into and you know live their lives by these practices. So, I think to expect that not to feed into uh, you know, a, a leisure time hobby you know, would be naive. So obviously, we get not only do we get people with these beliefs writing these games, but we get a lot of these people with these beliefs kind of playing these games and um, board games and you know, video games also as well. But especially role playing games, which have always had that element of the supernatural and magic using around them. Yeah, and uh, alchemy and and stuff like that as well. And just I think even the mere act of sitting at a table with a group of people. And collectively telling a story is a form of summoning, 
in a way, isn't it? Really, it's it's, it's a spellcasting in itself. Is you're you're bringing a story into being between your imaginations. Well, I mean, when we really get into it, the the act of speaking to each other, of forming the words, is spellcasting because that's why we have the word to spell something. You know, because as we speak, we are literally casting spells. Um, you know, that's why we have the universe. It's the single song. Um, but so the, the very act of getting everybody around a table, you're right. I mean, it is a ritual. It's a ritual of storytelling. You know, we, whether consciously or subconsciously, are reenacting the great stories, you know, the, the kind of tales of the, the gods and the demigods and the, you know, the hero's journey and all of those kind of things that we, you know, these archetypes. I think if you were to have a conversation with somebody like Carl Jung um, about the, the kind of hobby of role playing, I think you could really get into some interesting kind of dark corners about you know, what you're really doing and, and what it says about, you know, the, the, the connected consciousness of the people around the table. And, you know, you start getting kind of bordering into creation of thought forms and, and, and things like that. So, I mean, it's yeah, some some interesting ideas. I mean, there's almost too many ideas to uh, to to get through in one episode. So we're definitely something we'll be coming back to in, in future episodes. Um, and as always, I'll just take this quick opportunity to... Uh, encourage listeners to join in the conversation in the future when we're able to open up this uh, chat if you have anything that you'd like to um, ask us about or chime in on then do let us know um, get on the instagram and get on the discord uh, when you can um, so in terms of the mechanics of it in terms of actually uh, laying out game engines and systems and having dice in your hand um, if well if i if i'm a if i'm a crunchy kind of player and if I'm if I'm someone who likes my rules and I like my I like my systems to be laid out, would you say that's something that complements the idea of a hermetic or an occult role playing game, or do you think those two ideas kind of clash with each other by their nature? I think they clash with each other by the nature, if I'm honest, because anyone who is genuinely interested in you know um, magic, you know, with a K, um, would realise that it isn't something that is done off the cuff. Um, I mean, although we, you know, we live magical lives and, you know, everything that we do and, and say are essentially magical acts. Um, so I'm not denying that to people who are into it from a, um, you know, that kind of, that idea. But I think in order to look at magical practices, it's often something that requires a lot of time, forethought, planning, down to the time of day, down to the, 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 the resources that you have around you, um, what you prepare. So I think it, in order to accurately represent what I would call real magic in a role-playing game would be to take a lot of the fast pace and the drama out of the game, when really the role-playing games are essentially about having fun. Um, so casting, chucking a fireball down the street in a fantasy game uh, is a lot more fun than developing a protection ritual, um, you know, or summoning a dead teacher and, you know, net romantically in order to kind of gain ideas from them. You know, the ritual could take hours if not you know days um you don't want to deal with that in a, in a regular session you you want your magic to be you know click your fingers and it's done and move on and i think that's where D D managed to get that that element almost right at the beginning because magic just became an, another weapon so to speak and i think that's developed and altered through the the, the additions of D and um, to the point now where we get actually the the, the magic system in fifth edition I'm going to call it complicated. Now I know mechanically, with regards to some other systems, it's not complicated. But the reason I'm calling it complicated is just 
because of the sheer volume of different spells and the interaction of those spells with each other and with the game as a whole, the, all of those different um, combinations become you know really complicated to think about and can, can result in some interesting um, ways to deal with, with game mechanics. So I think that the D&D magic system has, although it was quite simple, has become quite, quite complicated in my opinion. I would say maybe it's too complicated. It's kind of bloated a little bit. I just think I've always had this issue with role-playing games where the D&D Players Handbook, no matter which edition you go to, has always, in my opinion, suffered from the biggest flaw was how many of the pages were given over to spell descriptions. Now, I realize it's, <laughs> I realize it's quite an important part of any role-playing game. But also, and this is not just D&D's fault, this is, this is the fault of any game that has powers or spells or whatever. I mean, I was, um, I was reading through a copy of Overlight this week um, by Renegade um, Game Studios. And I decided to read it cover to cover. You know, it's a new game. I, I, well, it's not new to me. Um, I decided to really get into it from the beginning and read it all the way through. Now, 100 of those pages, well, 80 or 100 of those pages out of a 300-page book are power descriptions. Basically, spell slash superpowers. I, I haven't got time to read all of those. I don't. I want to get a rough idea of, of what the spells can do. But in terms of reading that book, I'm going to skip that entire hundred page section. So once I finish reading two hundred pages, I'm done with that book. If I ever get around to playing it, which I hope I will, or running it, then I will pay much more attention to the minutiae inside of those descriptions. But especially as a D and D player. Um, if you love to play a fighter or a thief or a cleric or whatever it happens to be, you get into Dungeons and Dragons and you know the, your dungeon master or the, the guy who you're going to play with or the, the lady who's running the game turns around and says, you know, pick yourself up a player's handbook and, and that'll be great and you'll have everything you need. If you were planning on playing a fighter, you can guarantee that a good chunk of that book is no use to you at all. Um, which is always, I've always kind of thought the magic rules should have been either in the DM's book or as a separate tome. Um, so you could happily play D&D in a low magic world without that extra supplement because it literally accounts for half, sometimes more than half of the page count in the player's handbook of spells. It's just, it's, it's quite ridiculous. By the time you go through all nine levels of, you know, magic user spells and warlock spells and cleric spells and all that kind of stuff, um, it's such a huge page count. And again, you're coming back to the idea of um, the rules getting in the way of the magical side of things, and instead of instead of letting the magical idea flourish and grow, I don't know. I think it's almost holding you back. I don't. I don't know about whether it holds you back because actually, with so many spells, it allows for variation and allows magic users to be different to one another, and it allows you to come up with interesting combinations of spells and new spells and all that kind of stuff. So I don't have an issue with the choice. That's offered because I think when when it comes down to power descriptions, whether it be spells or disciplines or superpowers, I think the more variety, the better, because then there's a more variety of PCs and NPCs and, and, and various story interactions. My issue, really, from a publisher's point of view, is that so much of that is given over to the game, whereas I think a lot of people, maybe not a lot of people, some people might want to run that game in a, in a low magic setting, and a lot of that page count is then superfluous. Absolutely. Um, but to drag it back to talking about you know representation of kind of real magic and role playing games, I think because a lot of magic is is um, takes a lot of time and is done personally and behind closed doors, 
and you know may take a long time for the effects to become known and it's not flashy um, it doesn't suit itself to a dramatic storytelling hobby um, whereas you, you get this fancy and style magic again which I keep talking about which is much more um, suited to to a role-playing style and, that, and and also let's not forget that most superpowers in, in what you call a super superhero genre they're essentially it's essentially magic and, and I know it's not they can be created from all sorts of things you know alien technology or um, various mutant factors but what, what we're talking about is magical abilities essentially by a different name so um, in, but it's much easier to get away with that in you know that kind of whole Marvel DC style idea where that magic is a lot faster and a lot more innate um, it doesn't really fall into that that hermetic style of you know the you know the guy with his, you know his crew, and you know spending ten hours summoning a creature that might be able to, you know, give somebody a bad stomach, which is, you know, which is more like real magic, but that doesn't really lend itself very well to an exciting game of Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah, but I mean, we as games masters understand it, that everything has to be dramatized to a certain extent to to create that story that we're all after. It's it's not just magic, is it? It's the same with everything else. Even conversations are, are shortened and made sharper and snappier for the purposes of the story. You know? Absolutely, you know, it's more it's it's more cinematic that way. You know, and it's more dramatic and it's more entertaining. And um, which is why you aren't really going to get a lot of instances where the magical system in a role playing game is able to mirror real magical systems to to a major degree. So in that way, you're almost there's that safety net is there. Um, so because you, you're not going to go into great detail, and you know some games do, you know going back to Nephilim, I mean, there's some really that's more about concepts than it is about anything else. But there, you know, there are plenty of role-playing games that, you know, you, you doing demon summoning and you know drawing out of pentacles and you know all that kind of stuff and sacrifices and, but they tend to be they're less common. Than the kind of magical systems where you just learn a spell and then can make yourself fly or cast a fireball or whatever, which which isn't really um, ever really being considered real magic. I, I mean, I don't. You can get the gods and the demigods can can do some amazing things, but um, I struggle with any kind of literature that tries to describe any magicians doing something so flashy. I mean, even some of the the most famous um, iconic mages. I mean, just look at Merlin. I mean, he he wasn't throwing fireballs around. You know, his his gifts were in you know prophecy and you know herbalism and guidance and just being wise in general. You know, he wasn't casting featherfall and magic missile. So I think it, it yeah we get we get we don't really get that um, that kind of historical pseudo historical slash mythological representation of magic in role playing games. We get more of a um, comic book style high fantasy representation of magic which suits the hobby but that's the definition between what we're calling you know real magical practices and, and otherwise yeah well it suits the suits the type of game not necessarily the entire hobby but yeah i mean the the, the type of ritual spells are always the ones that have appealed to me more and even when i'm flicking through the 5e um handbook all of the spells that have got the ritual tag in them are the ones that appeal to me the most. The idea that a spell doesn't just come out your fingertips, it actually requires some sort of effort and time and can go wrong before it before you gain that result. That that is appealing to me. A, a spell as a process instead of a spell as a sort of instant 
instantaneous trigger? I think there was some really interesting diversions. And, and, and to support Dungeons & Dragons at this point, um, the reason that I mentioned this is you just said, you know, there's a lot of personal investment in a ritual. Um, and, you know, it's, it's part of, you know, that, that, that person you know, committing themselves over to, to the end result. And I think it, I want to bring up the character of Raceland, um, who was a major character in the Dragonlance um, Chronicles, especially the early ones. Obviously, he was one of the major heroes of the Lance. And I think what was really interesting with the way that they dealt with magic in uh, on the world of Kryn, which was the Dragonlance setting, was that using magic actually had a great toll on the individual casting it. Um, you know, it required a lot of you know, cha basically channeling of that energy, and you know, it took a great toll on the physical body. Um, and nowhere was that more apparent than with the, the journey that the character of Raceland went on. And, and I think that was a really interesting, and it was the first time I'd seen that in Dungeons & Dragons, where you get this almost magic has a cost, you know, it has a human cost. And then I think they followed that up quite nicely with um, the setting of Dark Sun, which was essentially a post-apocalyptic fantasy setting. But the apocalypse had happened because magic had ravaged the world. And in the setting as you start, there are two kind of mag magicians. There are preservers, those who will take a long time to cast their spells and that will not ravage the wilderness. And there are defilers, those who will basically suck the energy out of nature and use it to power their spells. And that is what continues to destroy the world of you know, Dark Sun. Um, so I think that as D&D became more mature and, and went out into different ideas, you definitely saw that moving away from that that flashbang style of magic, and they, they they explored some other avenues. And I think it's sad now that D and D has almost it's narrowed itself again um, down into a real bottleneck, where the, the average D and D game is much more like the original average D and D games than it than it was, say, in the second edition golden era, where you had such you know, amazing uh, and iconic campaign settings as Dragonlance and, you know, uh, Birthright and Dark Sun and things like that. And it, it, it's missing a lot of that now. And I think that's that's part of what doesn't appeal to D&D 5th, to a lot of um, kind of older gamers maybe and gamers who remember a lot of those, those settings. Don't get me wrong, you can use the brand new rules and you can just plug it into your old campaign settings if that's what you want to do. But I, I feel like... Wizards of the Coast are missing a, a real trick by exploring some of those worlds that look at magic a very different way. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think they've leaned too heavily into Forgotten Realms for one thing, but another. I don't know how much you know about license holding and the rights they have to this to these stuff, but they have an arsenal of awesome settings like Dark Sun, like Planescape, which has its own magic system, and like Greyhawk and Dragonlance and stuff, and you can have all these different ways that magic works, and it's all it's all sitting there waiting to be used, yeah. and they, they don't touch any of yeah. it. It's very frustrating. It's all theirs, and I, and I realise that they can't do everything at once, don't get me wrong, I'm not unrealistic, um, but I remember being very excited, you know, I was running, I was running my own store when, when 5th edition came out, I, I was very, very big fan of the fifth edition when it was released. I ran it in the store. I was part of Wizards of the Coast's, um, you know, kind of official D and D in store gaming program. We used to get the adventures, and you know, we, I played it for a long time, and it was great. So I'm not, I'm not supporting any of that. But what happened very quickly was that the source books that were being released, you're right, they either focused very heavily on the Forgotten Realms, 
or they were a bit lackluster and a bit just unnecessary really um, and I was waiting for these fantastic um, new versions of the games that I loved and I know they've touched on some things you know they've done Everon which I, you know, I'm not a big fan of I think it's you know yeah, give us that again. Yeah, it's not it's not for me. Um, I, I realise why a lot of people like it. You know that kind of steampunky kind of thing, still very popular. Um, it's very anime, and I yeah, I get that. I get why I get its appeal. But I think when you're right, they've got this absolute filing cabinet of gems, which they they haven't really dug down into. Um, I think it's a real shame. But yeah, yeah to to drag about the magic, I just wanted to. to Defend TSR, uh, you know, who, who obviously owned D and D at the time. That you know, they did experiment with different magic systems and some of their or different approaches to the magic system in some of their campaign settings. So I didn't want to just say that you know D and D's approach to magic was was very two dimensional and, and kind of boring because I think that would be that would be untrue. I think. Not not that we can spend all day shitting on D and D, but even within a game of Five E, you have different approaches to magic from different classes you know and i um as, as cliched as it might be at this point i'm still a fan of the fact that wizards are book learners and sorcerers are it's kind of innate instinctual casters and warlocks have to get their power from someone else i like i like the differentiation between the three and i like the realms that it gives them all to work inside of that are separate to the other ones but at the same time those venn diagram circles do cross over a little bit I enjoy that. You could have a party of spellcasters and still have enough variety to have each one be an individual character. So that to to praise D and D, I think at least they're they're holding true to that kind of element, um, which which doesn't detract completely from the interest of of spellcasting. But at the same time, they've got it's like ten percent of what they could be doing. They're really pulling their punches, I think, with fifth edition. Yeah, I agree. I mean that. Uh, that... They're still releasing books at a, at a fairly reasonable rate, um, but I must admit that a lot of the books they're releasing don't don't appeal to me. Um, as someone who's kind of been there and seen that and done it, and I don't know if I am the target demographic. Maybe I'm not. Um, you know, so that that's hard to argue. Um, and I realise that you know a lot of people are excited about it. It's doing very well. Um, so I guess we'll we'll see where that goes. Yeah, we'll see what happens with that. Yeah, you're right. Okay, so. Um Outside of the realm of Dungeons and Dragons, possibly outside the realm of fantasy, um, what sort of role-playing games are available to me if I want to play a modern-day or contemporary setting where I can harness those kind of magical abilities to improve what would be considered a mundane lifestyle? Okay, I mean, um, so some of the ones that, well, the, the main one that, that leaps to my mind at the moment is um, written by CJ Carella, and it's the Witchcraft role-playing game, um, and it was published under Eden Studios um, using the same system as they they used for their Buffy and, and Angel role-playing games and um, things oh, like that. Mate, that's awesome, because I'm asking this question because what I really want to get to is, can I play a charmed role-playing game? That's really <laughs> Now, funnily enough, um, I don't think there's a charmed role-playing game. Yeah, maybe I'm wrong. Oof. Now, there is a supernatural role-playing game based on the TV show, um, which, which for some reason, and don't ask me why, has such a high secondary market value. Um, I mean, I, I, you know, I've shifted copies of that for, you know, three digits and it, you know it's it blows my blow yeah it blows my mind um I don't, I don't know why it's so popular but it is um so yeah i don't i don't think there's a charmed one but if, if you go to that kind of um oh, what's what's that movie um 
with the the girl, you know, teenage high school spellcasters. Um, oh, another one you're talking about. The it's called the craft. The craft, right? Okay, so to me, witchcraft, the role playing game, can be used to kind of present that kind of you know modern day people getting mixed up and whatever. But actually, it's a very good dark role playing game, and it and it takes its its presentation of magical and religious systems quite well and quite seriously. Um, nothing I would expect any less from such a great writer and designer as C.J. Carella. Um, so I think witchcraft would be my would be one of the the, the big tips to go to. Um, I think also you could use the World of Darkness book, which I think is always a great default for modern um, modern settings. And you can do with what you like with that. You can take it all the way from X Files. And you, you've got to remember X-Files, even though it, it became much more synonymous with the, the UFO idea once it went into its major meta plot. you've got to remember some of those early X-Files episodes dealt with magic, um, you know, um, curses and voodoo and astral travel and, you know, all it, it, there's definitely a supernatural magical element to those, that kind of X-Files feel. So I think you can do, you know, Conspiracy X, you can do um, World of Darkness, you can do Witchcraft, um, Esau Terrorists by Robin D. Laws is a great dark um, modern setting where, you know, the, the puppeteers behind the curtain are essentially kind of demon, dark worshipping, you know, giant owl summoning freaks. So, I mean, you know, there's, there's a lot of that. And I mean, you get into some of the darkest monster manuals written uh, but one of the darkest ones i mean to me is the uh, the book of unremitting horror which was published for um esoterrorists for the gumshoe system and it was also released in a dnd 3.5 version and i mean that is a real freaky monster book um yeah there's, there's some there's some awful, awful stuff in that so yeah i mean that this there's there's plenty of modern day um role-playing games where you can kind of play somebody who has that, that kind of magical side to them. That's great. I love that. I've got a copy of Easter Terrorists here on my bookshelf, and next to it is a well-read copy of Knight's Black Agents, which is a really great book. I, I love flicking through and getting ideas from. I could read that book all day long. I love that. Yeah, for anybody listening, that's um, that's the kind of trailer Cthulhu rules, the, the kind of gumshoe investigate the system that Robin D. Laws came up with, um, but Knights Black Agents transforms that into a modern day um, vampire slash vampire hunting game, which I think is great. And to me, it smacks of Ultraviolet, the TV show, not the movies, um, which I, I just think is so good. Um, yeah. And do you know what, right? You could, you, you played Knights Black Agents. There's a great little movie called Vampire Nation that you could just use as a as, as a as a plot straight into Knights Black Agents. You know, really? watch Nation, really? yeah, watch watch Vampire Nation and uh, read Knights Black Agents and then just go vampire hunting in in you know modern day Romania. Boom, done. I love it. All right, that's that's several hours of play right there. For <laughs> right there, right there. Lazy GMs right there. who want to just right take there. a game. Yeah, yeah. I am. Um, when when we when we mentioned actually, there's a little story that I want to kind of crowbar in here. Um, and it's got nothing to do with vampires, so it's it's not a great segue. But um, Sorry, I've got a story I want to tell you later as well. So you can have you? All right, okay. I'll I'll, I'll we'll swap. Yeah, I'll do first. Then. Um, and it was to do. It, it came into my mind when we were talking about you know the satanic panic in, in the late seventies and the early eighties, and we kind of drifted on before I got a chance to kind of slide it into that conversation. But there was an RPG um, creator by the name of Professor M. A. R. Barger. Um, 
now he, he was an RPG creator, but he was he wasn't that for, foremost. He was a you know a scholar of ancient languages and, and and ancient history, and you know he was a professor. But he, in order to um, scratch his itch for the creation of cultures and languages, um, he created the fantastical world of Tecumel, um, which some gamers might have heard of, which has had various incarnations. Um, and it's quite early actually, so the very first incarnation of the world of Tecumel or the Empire of the Petal Throne was written as a kind of D support to D&D &D, and I believe it was actually published by TSR, the first version. Um, so he was actually designing the world of Tecumel before the hobby of role-playing games came along and then when role-playing games came along he was able to go, oh, well this is, the, this is the great vehicle for me to take other players in and let them explore my world and my cultures and my background. And Tecumel is, it's a classic example of, of science fiction that's gone so far that it begins to feel like fantasy again. So for people who are familiar with things like Gene Wolfe and you know, Jack Vance, and it's that great idea. Um, Numenera. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. And uh, Numenera is, is, is nothing if not the kind of, the perfect kind of grandchild of something like Gene Wolfe's Shadow of the Torture. Um, but we get to, to Tecumel, which was, I mean, I liken it to Lord of the Rings in the sense that Barker created this entire language system with Soliani and, and like Tolkien did with, you know, creating the elven languages and he was a real, you know, philologist and, you know, the, the scholar of culture. And um, what you get with Tecumel, and this is where the story's going, this is a preamble just to set the scene, um, Professor M.A.R. Barker was publishing his books to support, you know, the, his game. And there is essentially um, a, a set of good gods and evil gods in the in the, the kind of um, the milieu of Tecumel. And the dark gods are obviously worshipped by you know, various cultists and priests, etc. And he produced a book um, called the Book of Ebon Bindings, which was basically like a, a tome of dark knowledge, which was designed to be... Um, exactly what somebody on Technomel would be able to read and learn about the dark gods and you know, a tome of you know dark wisdom. Um, so he published this and um, he was you know the role playing was in its infancy and you know he didn't have a huge profit margin to push into this. And uh, I'm paraphrasing this entire story but it, it, the, the nuggets of it are true. Um, he, he published a small run of the Book of Ebon Bindings and um, a radical church group Got hold of this that this had been published, and one of them it must have flicked through it or whatever, and, and thought that it looked entirely demonic, very satanic, and you know no good for anybody's souls. So they rushed round the local area and further afield in order to snap up every copy of this book so they could burn it. So they, they bought them all, burnt them. Um, the only thing books are good for. Yeah. So Professor M. A. Barger sat down and penned a letter to this group, this Christian group, thanking them for making the first edition of his book of Ebon Bindings a sellout, um, and used the profits from those sales to publish a second, larger edition of the book, on, of, the book of Ebon Bindings. Um, and I think they, they stopped trying to buy them and burn them at that point because they realized they wanted something, you know, onto a loss. But I think that's just a great classic, um, true urban legend of, of how mad this thing got in the late 70s in America where 
you know, church members are going around buying this book and burning it, and then everyone you know, is going, "Well, thanks for that. I can now print some <laughs> more. I can now print some more." Um, so, needless to say, that those kind of the early um, versions of the Book of Ebon bindings are, are very rare. Um, and even the second edition, the large black version, changes hands for quite a lot in the secondary market value. So, if you if you ever here's a here's a human energy field hot tip. Um, if you're ever in a second-hand bookstore or a craft uh, a gaming fair or whatever, and you see a a weird black book with gold writing on it that says Book of Ebon Bindings and you don't know what game it's for because it doesn't say on the front, it doesn't say on the back. Um, pick it up and uh, enjoy it. And if you don't enjoy it, sell it on eBay and make yourself easily over £100. That's a great hot tip. Thank you. I'm great hot tip. To there more, you go. more hot tips coming, yeah. coming at you. Love it. Yeah, well, at least one a week. There you go. <laughs> We're going to have a tip segment now, yeah, as well as everything else. I'll just slide, I'll just slide him in there. So anyway, that that was my uh, that was my little thing I wanted to bring up. What, what was yours? What were you going to hit me with? That was great. Um, I I'm, my story is going to be more relevant for the film section, so I'm going to tell you mine when we when we move on to the film. Section. All right, okay, okay. I mean, do you want to do, do we feel to to move to the film section? Are we there yet? Uh, I think we we've made that decision also, yeah. almost automatically at this point now. Yeah, we have. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I mean th- that was enlightening. Some stuff I'm, I'm aware of. Some stuff uh, is it's a pleasure to listen to this kind of hi- uh, history about role playing games, and you always kind of run the risk of I don't know about you. I don't claim to be any kind of expert on hermeticism or, or any of that. It's just something that I kind of have a passing interest in. You know, these, these kind of various areas that are, are appealing to me from a heavy metal standpoint and a role playing standpoint and a writer's standpoint. But it's not something that I would ever say. I adhere to in any in any in any kind of strict sense, but it is fascinating nonetheless to hear about, especially as a from a gamer's perspective. Yeah, absolutely, and um, you know, I, I kind of shadow what you're saying. You know, I'm no uh, no great expert. Um, obviously, I'm, I'm, I'd like to consider myself fairly well read um, with regards to you know occultism and esoterica, etc. Um, and, and I'm sure that no matter what deep niche individual people are into. You can quite often make a little bit of a faux pas, but I think you know if you just want to be a, a scholar of the, the magical arts in general, then uh, you can obviously only speak about them in uh, you know in passing. And, and there are there are going to be experts who can who can pick and choose little, little elements. But um, I think what we've said is basically sums up a nice relationship between you know what I would call real magic with a K and um, fantasy magic, which which appears in role playing games. Again, it's I think it's something we can go back to um, further when we talk about things, but. I think if people are interested in that, there's been enough little um, references to books that they can they can go out and seek one of those titles down and, and get more into that if they want to. So, yeah, I think there's enough there for people to take away for now. I enjoyed that segment, certainly. Um, so let's move on now um, from the role-playing segment into the film section. Excited for this. Excited for this. Good. I was excited for you to see this film. Uh, I have chosen for this episode the... 2018 horror film Hereditary Um, if you have not seen this film I suggest you pause or skip the rest of this podcast and go and watch this film because there's no way we're going to be able to talk about it without getting into major spoilers Um, and I think to be honest mate this is going to be a stance we're going to have to take moving forward because every time we talk about a film we're going to have to spoil it aren't we let's be honest I think absolutely. I think in order to discuss a film, um, you know, correctly, you're right. There's going to be huge spoilers in it. So if you are interested in, in seeing it and then listening to our views on it afterwards, 
you know, pause it, go away, watch it, you know, two hours of your time or whatever, that's great, and then come back and then you can join in the conversation. Yeah, uh, and I would recommend doing so. This is one of my favourite films. Um, there's only been two horror films I've ever seen which have made the hairs on my arms stand up. One of them was The Exorcist, and the other one is this film, Hereditary. Uh, it's genuinely skin-crawling to me. Um, it's a, it's a, a great piece of filmmaking, regardless of, of the horror elements or not. I think it's just a success in terms of, um, uh, from a technical standpoint. Um, so you hadn't even heard of this film before I recommended it to you for this episode, had you? Have you heard of the director, Ari Aster? Is it something that you're familiar with? I was. I haven't seen this film before. Um, before you told me about it, and I, and I watched it in, in preparation for this this recording. Um, and I, I wasn't aware of the director's name, although when I did look into who it was, I am f- I'm familiar with their work. Um, so uh, seeing that before I watched it made me think, you know, I might, I might be in for something something solid and good. I realised Gabriel Byrne was in it. I've got a lot of time for him. You know, I think um, he's a great actor. And the female lead as well, um, solid. So, yeah, do you want to do you want to kick us off with giving us a a, a brief um, brief overview of what the film film is about? Yeah, Tony Collette, awesome actress. Tony uh, Collette. Hereditary is a, a contemporary film set in the modern day about a grieving family. The film's mainly about family and suffering. Um, it's been described as uh, a film about a possession told from the perspective of the sacrificial lamb i think at its core the director would describe it as a family drama it's certainly a horror film it certainly has a lot of horror elements it takes place in a house in utah Uh, it's centered around this one family and their kind of um history of uh mental health issues and various other problems that they've had going back through through their uh, through their family tree which as the film progresses we sort of learn more about why and where those issues have come from um there is the husband and wife played excellently by Gabriel Byrne and Tony Collette Tony Collette's performance in this is is like award winning I don't know if, I don't know what sort of accolades she received for it but I could watch her uh, act this this frantically grieving mother all day long. She's she's just like really on point. I think to to jump in there, um, and I'm going to let you continue. But you're absolutely right. I think um, her ferocity in in playing what looked like genuine grief at some of the events that occurred in this movie was 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 mind blowing. And that to me was some of the some of the real highlights of this film. But so yeah, I absolutely agree with her performance in this. Yeah, yeah, and I think uh, regardless of else of what you think, the performances by the actors is enough to watch this film. Um, there's also a very lengthy soundtrack. Um, I think there's like eighty minutes of music or something throughout the film, and that that does play a key role in it as well. Um, the, uh, the the story of a of a long term possession. Um, we see it unfold, and we see all these kind of recurring themes come into play over and over again and all these little story elements end up tying together culminating in the summoning the successful summoning of uh, a king of hell who is brought into existence um, by this cult who live in this town Um, and it's it's something that through the actions and words of the characters of this family we learn that this possession has been taking place over 
generations of the same family. It's something that's been tried and tried again. Um, the grandmother, we learn, of the family is friends with um, the, the cult who has been attempting these possessions uh, in other members of the family. Failed attempts for various reasons have ended in suicides or or um, what could be considered mental mental illness problems, but actually are um, the result of, of someone trying to bring a demon forth in, into a human body. Um, so there's there's a lot of parallels to be drawn with real life struggles and mental health struggles and grief and suffering. Um, but it's it's sort of draped over this this framework of this family drama. Do you know what you make an you make an interesting point that I'm going to jump in there and, um, and and talk about the film because I actually think that the entire film had been played out in a way that would have made me doubtful whether these events were supernatural or whether they were purely based around um, somebody's kind of uh, issues and and kind of psychoses. I think I would have been left with a much um, more dramatic, much much better taste in my mouth after the movie. I think I would have got much more from it if it had gone down that road a bit more a bit more carefully. Um, that I would I would sit here as the audience wondering, scratching my head, going, Ooh, is that the influence of the supernatural or is that in their minds or is that luck or coincidence? And I think part of my major issue with this film, and, and, and I must say that I liked it on the whole, but my major issue with it that stopped me from really enjoying it was the, the supernatural elements which had been presented so excellently and um, low-key all the way through the film until near the end had reached a crescendo where it, it became more like paranormal activity than it did like something else. And I think once you reach this... Um, this element where you have headless bodies floating around, uh, my suspension of disbelief was dropped. Now, I can continue to believe in nightmares and terrible accidents and, um, you know, even a piece of chalk moving on a chalkboard or a glass moving in a seance. I can kind of, I can believe in all of these kind of things um, because they are rooted in the real world. But once you get past that into this realm of, of pure fiction, um, you know, women crawling on the roof and things like that. That, to me, was where, if the film had kept its its nerve, I think it would have been a more successful film in the long run. But I think it, it decided to, um, it went too far in the end, is my opinion. I think this is where our tastes differ, because if I had watched that film and it had only indicated kind of vaguely that there might be something weird going on but it's up to me to decide if it was in someone's head or if it happened in real life i would have left feeling very frustrated i'm i so i'm glad that our tastes differ in this in this case because i'm happy that it 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 picks a theme and it doubles down on it and it doesn't it doesn't hold back and it goes no this is it is about a demon summoning we're going to have all these metaphorical you could have had well you could have had the last scene where the, the the young boy in the family is crowned the you know the, the the king of hell well you know one of the kings of hell you know Paimon the demon who is summoned into his mortal incarnation by this cult um you could have had that without all of these super crazy elements of crime on the roof and bodies floating around you could have had accidents happen people hurting each other and whatever 
and you could have been left at the end wondering whether actually is this group for real or have things just gone the way that they wanted them to and they're all wrapped up in this kind of um this kind of cult psychosis i think that would have been much more powerful i think i think when you end a movie and you don't know whether that was real or not has much more kind of resonance than than buying out of the film because you know what's happened isn't real i think that's just a different film but i don't think it is a different film because i think i think three quarters of this film in fact eight tenths of this film are presented (laughs) in it are presented in a way where all of these events could arguably um, be kind of discussed away by a skeptic. Um, but once you reach the last few scenes, if a skeptic had been witness to those, there is no excuse. And I, I would have liked to have seen it play out where somebody who came along after could have gone, I can explain this away. Even though you as the audience are kind of going, no man, it's real, you know, this, this possession is real. It, it's more scary that nobody can really prove it. And I, I think that's where it loses a bit of credibility towards the end. And I think that the, the performance of the main two actors, as you quite rightly said, is brilliant up until near the end. And actually, for the last 20 minutes, half an hour of the film, they don't do any acting because one of them is dead and the other one is doesn't say anything. It's just running around like a, essentially like a monster. So they're, well, they're acting. They, they, they cease to act. There's a scene where the, the man and wife played by Gabriel Byrne and Tony Collette are kind of trying their best to end this ritual um, that is that is trying to kind of consume their son. And it's a great scene. They stand in the living room, which has been the scene of so much throughout the movie. It's quite dramatic. And she cries on him. She, she tells him he's the love of her life. And you, you can see he's not, he's still the skeptic. He's not really buying into the occult um, activities that have happened and and then when he dies she goes off to be a monster that is the last scene they essentially act in and if the fil- if the movie had ended then it would have been a better film um well no i disagree with that it's it, the film switches between members of the family as it goes along doesn't it and you you might start the story with the girl and then you get quite a bunch of scenes with annie the mother and then towards the end of the film it focuses more towards the uh, the son so we we get like a rotation around the family as the film progresses. I think um, so I think that's I think the reason that's done is to slowly bring us around to the idea that the story is all actually about the boy. It's it's a you know it's a, it's to deceive us to keep us guessing and you know keep us on the edge of our seat while we decide exactly who the the target or the purpose of, of all these events are. And I think at the beginning the boy is displayed as the outsider as you know the kind of somebody who's not massively um entwined into these events but is kind of caught up in them and eventually we see that actually it's all about him um, and i think that's a clever d- device that they use in order to to get us to that point um so i have no issue with that as a, as a story point of view um i think that works particularly well i think if they if if this film had no outwardly supernatural elements to it i would have considered that it was phoning it in and then it, it, it couldn't decide on what it was going to be and i'm happy that it it made its choice and that there are towards the end the last uh, two tenths of the film as you said uh, actually go on that kind of balls to the wall um the demon is now the demon is now in reality and is moving through these different bodies and is and is crawling up the walls and floating across the ceiling and stuff 
it just it it lends it a certain horror that we've been waiting for the whole film because it's not about jump scares it's not about um creepy eyes and teeth like like a a cheap cinema film we've we've got emotionally invested in these three-dimensional characters that we've seen grow and change and grieve throughout the film and go through these horrible traumas and then at the end it it makes sense to me that a demon would be able to get inside tony uh, annie's body because i've watched her mind break down over the course of this film so i, I absolutely I, have I, no I problem that with possessed. that you know what I, mean? I, I believe that too and i think this this is so nice because it chimes into a conversation we've had about the difference between magic and real life and magic and role-playing games here we're talking about the occult and possession and the belief in possession and in real life and occult possession and and the belief in possession in this movie or movies in general and whatever your stance is on possession whether you're a roman catholic or whether you are a you know, pagan or a christian or whatever there's a lot of people who believe that possession is possible um now if you are going to believe possession is a real life possibility you are not going to accept the possibility that somebody who's possessed can then fly because that's never been documented that's never been done now that does not make possession less scary now i, I you know i've watched read a lot of things watched a lot of things that that would would frighten me about possession but what's most frightening about them is i'm left wondering you know it could, is that really one thing or is this really another and i keep coming back to this point that the film makes a decision in order to go what you call kind of balls to the wall, I get that bravery in one sense, but to me it, it, it bursts its own the film, I think. it bursts its own bubble, in my opinion, because then I I am I am less nervous and kind of worried about oh you know could, what you want from a horror movie is you want to be scared, you want to be thinking oh this could you know what if this was really happening to me or whatever, but once I see a headless body floating around a garden, I'm in Ghostbusters territory at that point. You know, I'm in, I'm in kind of, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in, I'm in Harry Potter, and 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 all of that real fear is gone by that point. Um, so to me, to me, that's where it, I, I can totally see why what you're saying, but for, for me, I just think it's it's such a good film up until a point, and then it kind of loses its way. Have you seen The Witch? Uh, I have, I have. Um, without. Spoiling that film, I guess. Do you remember the end scene of that film? Like mm-hmm. the very last sort of minute of that film? I, I do. I'm, I get the same vibe with that end scene as with this one. Uh, you, you sort of get a confirmation at the end. I, You're like, oh my you know God, what? that's, I'm that's gonna, actually real. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give myself a pass out on this one. And, and, and I'm going to tell you why. Because I think because of when the film is set and the events around the film, I think what we're doing is watching a... Um, representation of historical beliefs, and and I think the I think the events that happened in that film were considered absolutely possible by people in that instance in that time. Um, so to yeah, to to me it doesn't break um, it doesn't break tone, and and also it, it's it's much nearer the end, and and it's kind of it doesn't it it's different. I get where you're coming from. I see the simile, but with this, um, it, it it doesn't do that. You know, I can't, I can't buy into um, what happened at the end of this film? Even though I must admit, I, I had a, I had massively enjoyed the film as, as a whole. Um, although I must admit, I, I think it runs a little long. I think it it, it over over two hours, uh, two hours seven minutes. I think um, it it 
drags in places I don't think it needs to and I realize you've got to set the tone and you've got to set the pace for, for a real horror movie and things have to develop but I, I just think it's a little dragging in, in more than one more than one place they actually had hours more of footage of the family talking with each other and and establishing more about the kind of relationship between the family members and stuff like that I will I will also point out there's a um, uh, the film as a, as a technical achievement is very impressive all the effects are real so the the chalk moving itself on the on the whiteboard on the blackboard that's that was real done practically the candle that lights itself that's practical effects there's um you know even when she's um crawling around the ceiling and stuff like that that's all practical too there was hardly any cg in the film so that that's another um, that's another part of the film that i like you, yeah. you can you can definitely see that and i definitely appreciate that um you know it, it that's what lends it that air of realism, which I think is was so impressed me for the for the vast majority of the film, and that's why I think personally I was more upset that it, it went into this this kind of high what I call high fantasy element at the end, when a lot of it had been kind of super dark and super realistic to that point. So, um, but yeah, I can definitely definitely appreciate the way it was shot. Um, you know, the the acting was. Without criticism, you know, I, I can't fault any anybody who acted in it at all. Um, I thought it was, you know, it was it was really good from that point of view. And I, what I also liked about it is there were there were small elements of it that I've only watched it once, and I haven't read any discussion of it on the internet, and I haven't gone in and you know read any kind of great essay on the the meaning of it and little hints and things like that. But what I liked about it on a first watching, and there was tiny little things that I I understood, but I. I uh, I didn't quite get so there's the you know the the word that's scratched on the wall in the in the, in the young child's bedroom um, and I get that you know it's all a possession thing but what did that word mean it was you know what why is everybody naked um, you know at the end like there's a few little things I'm thinking kind of like I'd like to know a little bit more about this and I, that's good because it makes me it makes me invested to kind of realize that I'm I haven't been offered all of the the information on a platter, you know, and that's, that makes it more realistic, which is again a positive to the film. Um, but I wish there'd been a little bit more of that. I wish it had been less pandering to the audience and, and had had the bravery in order to um, finish the film the way it had started. And I think it would have been, it would, I would have left the the viewing feeling really unsettled. It was actually by the end, I, I was waiting for it to be over, and that's not what you want. Um, it definitely rewards a second viewing. Or oh, one of my favourite scenes is when the uh, teenage boy is in the classroom and he looks into the reflection and uh, the demon's staring back at him in the mirror and then it takes control of his body briefly and you watch him be possessed and then you watch him come out of the possession and, and react to the fact that he was just possessed and he's just like completely horrified and terrified about what's just happened to him. That's one of my, one of my favourite scenes in the film. It's, it's so good. I, I couldn't agree more. I think seeing these possession scenes and people snap out of them was really quite terrifying. And the fact that the scene that you're discussing plays right into what I'm talking about you know, the boy, you know, smashes his head off the desk, um, puts his arm in his in in in, in the air, and, and ends up kind of falling off his chair and then snapping out of it and being very distressed. Now, watching that as as a skeptic or a scientist or whatever, you could go, well, you know, that's um, you know, it's, 
I don't know the technical term for it, but you know he's 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 got some sort of diagnosis that has made him do that, and you know you can you can really hurt yourself when you're you're in that state. Of course you can, um, but we as the audience are watching it, knowing that this thing has been released or that this thing is floating around. So we have a real occult kind of sense to it. We know what's really happening, whereas every kid in the classroom is going to go home and say that this boy just had a breakdown, and that kind of that grey matter between reality and fantasy you can be explained as both I think is where the film massively succeeds that is because there's so much of the horror that I can buy into as either just coincidence or bad luck or people just having an absolute breakdown um, that's what I think is more frightening than, than stuff that happens right at the end Okay, this um, that is a great point for me to tell you the story that i've been saving for this this moment yeah all right let's do it um going right off the back of exactly what you've just said um so i watched this film i've seen it a couple times it does reward a second viewing um the most recent time i watched it i watched it with a friend and after the film we had the sort of standard discussion about ouija boards oh would you ever use a ouija board um what do you think about them and i have heard from separate trusted friends and sources stories about Ouija boards that are that I take seriously that are honestly pretty creepy um my friend who I watched this film with she told me a story I've texted her and asked her if I'm allowed to to speak about this publicly and she said it's okay uh she in college she had a teacher a tutor and um he in his younger days sat around a Ouija board with his friends and uh, began to use it, proceeded to try and try and activate it, try and use this Ouija board. Uh, you have to forgive me, I'm vague on the details, but basically the Ouija board um, began to move of its own accord uh, and they uh, were quite rightly um, shocked into giving up the experience, turning on the lights, putting the board away. Um, and then quite soon after that, he fell very ill. And then but the next day, um, he was uh, he had to go to hospital, and both his legs rotted off his body, and his pinky finger rotted off his hand. Um, and he now has prosthetic legs and has to walk with a walking stick um, because of this, this Ouija board experience that he'd had, that it turned his legs leprous and they rotted away from him. Now, I'm not using any names or anything, um, obviously out of respect, because it's I have a morbid curiosity about this, but that's, that's quite a heavy story. Um, but I asked my friend if I could relay this, and she said yes, and then I asked her if I could get in touch with the gentleman this has happened to, and she'd given me his name and um his details because he was a tutor and he's he's a um, right. he's a public speaker so i don't know okay. if you'd be interested i might i'm attempting to email him and see if he wants to come on the show and talk about the fact that he used a ouija board and lost his legs i mean yeah i mean um I, i'm gonna put it out there and say you know i take i take that very seriously um i take the ouija board very seriously i think it's always blown my mind that something which is um, almost a perfectly designed ad hoc ritual can be um, thrown into the hands of the, the unsuspecting. Um, you know, I've, I've heard, you know, many stories and, you know, I've had personal experiences 
um, around a Ouija board. Um, so, I, I mean, that is that is quite. You're right. That is that's quite deep. That's quite dark. You know, if if, if this had uh, had that effect on him, I'd be interested to know what the 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 conversation was around the board and maybe who they managed to speak to and and maybe why it had if if this had a connection to the loss of his legs then you know maybe maybe why how that had worked I could understand if it maybe the finger that was on the glass or the planchette then you know maybe if if that had been the digit or or you know whatever that had suffered then I think that would be even even more weird. Um, but I, I, it's the first time I've heard of somebody having their, their kind of light legs affected by the use of a Ouija board. But you know, I mean, whatever ailment can come out of it, if this had, if this was brought, you know, theoretically brought on by the, the, the use of this Ouija board, what you've got to remember is, um, you know, you, you're creating an opening at, at that point. You're creating a, a real opportunity there for. I'm just going to use the word things, um, for for want of a better word, things to move um, in different directions. And these things can quite often be um, the cause of um, that kind of uh, that kind of damage and that kind of you know kind of pain and, and, and harm. So I mean, um, you know, people who are who are not prepared to you know, protect themselves and and close the same doorways that they open, you know, can often be um, can can be the subject of, of this kind of. Um, Foul look or you know, pain, etc. So, yeah, I mean, it'd be really, it'd be really interesting to to maybe speak to him um, and see how open he is about whether he really believes that that event was was what caused, um, you know, whatever it was medically that happened to his legs. Um, you know, because I'm sure the doctors would have another, you know. Um, Kind of reason for it. I'm sure they, they they have kind of written that off as something else, and they're not going to say you know the reason for loss of legs Ouija board. That you know they're not they're not going to say that. Um, you know I'm, I'm you know I'm not I'm not laughing at the guy. You know the guy's lost his legs. Um, that's terrible. But I'd be interested to see whether he thinks that is a direct correlation and why he thinks that. Um, you know. She told me that he, as a result of that, he went on to find Christianity as a direct result of that experience, right. and he's now a sort of born again Christian. So, I mean, it certainly that, had a, an effect that, on him. That doesn't surprise me spiritually because I think anybody who goes through something um, really terrible, whether whether it's because of something like that or just just a random event, I think can often be pushed to question. Um, you know the the existence beyond the mortal, and you know the meaning of it all, and things like that. So I think I think anyone pushed to to such a, a life changing event as you know the loss of their legs or, or, or that, that kind of thing can often be pushed into a religion, no matter what religion it is. Um, so I don't find that surprising. I think that's just part of the human condition to find kind of need um, to kind of explain away this, or or actually just for some sort of level of protection. Um, I can understand that as well. Do you know what I mean? But um, yeah, it, it, if I was to speak to somebody like that, those the, the questions would be, you know, whether whether he really believed that and how that affected everything, and you know, what what questions were asked and you know that kind of thing, because that that would that would be the the, the real detail, the devil in the details for me. No pun intended. No pun intended. Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, it would be uh, with all the respect in the world, as well as morbid curiosity, but. 
Anyway, so I'm going to try and follow up on that, and I'll let you know if I get anywhere. Because yeah, please do. I know, do. I know he's, do. he's a public figure, and he he speaks and he does poetry readings and this kind of thing. I know that he's 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 up quite open about this, and it was it was fascinating enough for me to bring it here. Anyway. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, it's very, it, and that's the kind of thing that you know you can. It's, and I totally see why you why you brought it up after my comments on the movie because it really can't be argued either way whether. Um, his yeah, plight, exactly. his his plight was because of that event, or whether it was just a, a really poor coincidence, um, and that's the kind of thing that that means you can argue about it, you know, till the sun comes up and, and not get an answer. Be interesting if you, you know if you email him and um, and he gets back, you you know definitely keep us updated. I will. All right. Well, that that's another uh, human energy field update that's going to be uh, waiting in the wings to come back in a few in a future episode. So stay tuned yeah. for that. Yeah. Um, well, all in all, I would recommend watching uh, Hereditary again. If you've only seen it the first time and you're listening to this, go and give it a second viewing. There's lots to pick up the second time around. Um, but otherwise, I think we're pretty much uh, done with that film segment, aren't we? What do you, what do you reckon? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, uh, I think we agree on it mostly. I think we, we have different views on the end, but it's all good. Boston film, mate. Um, do you have a music pick for us to finish off the episode with? I, I do um it, it's only vaguely related to um to the subject at hand but what i'm going to bring to the table is uh the 1978 recording of the american prayer by the doors okay so for those people uh, familiar with the, the band the doors which i'm sure you will be jim morrison robbie Krager, ray manzarek john densmore um famous kind of psychedelic rock group um Obviously, Jim Morrison was the, the kind of lead singer, and some would argue that the kind of focus of the band. Um, I personally believe that the Doors wouldn't be um, wouldn't be as good without Jim Morrison, but Jim Morrison wouldn't be as good without the Doors. So I think it's a symbiotic relationship rather than um, Jim Morrison leading the four. So what we have with the American Prayer is it's essentially a prose album. Um, Jim Morrison was a poet as well as obviously a songwriter, two things tend to go hand in hand. Um, but what I think is perfect about a lot of Jim Morrison's uh, lyrics and his songs is they work very well as poetry. Um, and he had a lot of poetry and spoken words that he would that he would do live. And he recorded an American prayer um, on his own in the studio, you know, no doors, no music. Um, and it was his, you know, his voice. And it was posthumously that the music was added to it, you know, by the other members of the band and, and you know, um, various other technicians, in order to release the album that we know as the American Prayer. Um, so I think, to me, it sums up not just the height of what the Doors were, um, but it's it's the perfect record to get the idea of this shamanistic. Um, esoteric angle that was so wrapped up with Jim Morrison and his, you know, the legend of the Lizard King and the whole idea of Laurel Canyon in the 60s and, you know, this interest in the occult and the movement of the Golden Dawn over into the kind of West Coast of America and, you know, people really being interested in this, this kind of element of black magic and shamanism and all of these things which are so important to the scene but massively important to the doors of Jim Morrison. And I think that really comes through in an American prayer. It's um, it, it's kind of like a long musical ritual. And you know, if you listen to this, if you give it the the kind of credence it deserves, and you kind of 
lower the lights and put some candles on and, and kind of turn off all the distractions and listen to this album you are taken on a journey and it's you know it's a journey it's a magical journey you know it's a real it's real outer limits kind of stuff um how, are you aware of the album do, do you do you know of it uh me and you have listened to this i'm getting uh flashbacks to a, a time several years ago when when uh when we were listening to it do you know the warm progress under the stars yeah yeah well this is it you know um it's just so it's it's very quotable you know um quiet you know I just yeah, I'm not going to get into it because I could just do it. I'm, I'm going to stop myself before I begin <laughs> because otherwise I'm just going to begin to recite it. Um, but I think that's what's so good about it because it is this. It's a piece of work. It's a piece of ritual. I think, and the way that it's been delivered and then crafted afterwards. Um, I think it's a classic example of this um, magical thread that runs through a lot of these groups, like Led Zeppelin, Black Sabbath, and you know all of this other people who would embrace these these ideas and even the Beatles as well to a, to a degree for those people who really want to look into that and you know how the Beatles you know viewed Crowley and whatever um, and actually as a little interesting human energy field nugget of wisdom the fact that we have we are so um, familiar with yoga the fact that yoga is such a kind of um, all-encompassing very common part of our western daily life is purely down to the Beatles and um, Alistair Crowley because George Harrison um, was a big fan of Crowley's writing etc and um, Crowley was a big proponent of yoga and the, the Beatles followed that kind of um, that journey into India and, and became big fans of yoga and because the Beatles were so large so huge um, they carried that love of yoga to America and then eventually that love of yoga filtered back through to Britain so the, the fact that yoga is so huge is purely down to Thelema and Crowley through the Beatles, which is, you know, the whole ties into this whole American Prayer Jim Morrison thing because I think there isn't an album which exemplifies that magical belief system, that kind of real otherworldliness about real rock and, and, and kind of music, psychedelic and metal music, than the American Prayer. Wow. Well, next time I do my salute to the sun tomorrow morning, I'll be thinking about that. What about, talk to me a bit about The Doors' uh, greater body of work and some of the other stuff they've done. And do you think The American Prayer stands out? Is it is it more separate to their other albums and their other releases? Or is it indicative of their kind of general themes and tones that they that they portray as a band? It's, you strike an excellent point because actually American Prayer is so different from anything else that The Doors released because it's not a Doors studio album. It's not songs that they would have gone on um, on stage and done. You know, it was it was something that was came to, it came together and was greater than the sum of its parts. And um, it was Jim Morrison talking, you know, in a studio on his own, and the music was put on afterwards. So what we get with all of the other kind of regular, what I would call them, albums, you know, um, Morrison Hotel and you know the Doors, and Soft Parade, and you, know, you go through them all, but um, you, it's very different, so it's very unique in their body of work. Uh, it has more in common with live albums than it does with studio albums, in a sense. Um, because there's this, Jim Morrison was very famous for being able to just kind of, um, as, the, as the band would play this kind of repetitive rhythm in the middle of a song and a breakdown, he would then begin to talk either with the audience or 
go off on some poetry or do whatever he was. I mean, that that was part of his appeal. That was part of his showmanship. You know, the, the Lizard King. You know, um, and I think the American Prayer has got more of that kind of um, preachy, sermonistic idea about it than a lot of the 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 other main studio albums. So I think even though the music, some of it will be familiar in the riffs that are brought in from other songs into the American Prayer. Of course, all like it's all the Doors, the, the, instru the instrumentalists that you hear are you know the other members of the Doors. It it stands alone in that body of work, and and I think to say that there is still a connection, great connection between the American Prayer and the Doors' greater body of work because the subjects that they were talking about, especially on the lyrics that Jim Morrison wrote had this kind of real, um, almost, I'm going to say magical, this magical perception about the way Jim Morrison viewed the world and, you know, the way, therefore, that the doors, you know, bursting through the doors of perception and all this kind of stuff, um, which obviously wasn't his, um, but that was the whole idea of this. Um, I think when you read some of the um, biographies, which, which I have about Jim Morrison, they only very lightly touch on his connection into, you know, kind of occult practices and everything. What you've got to remember is he was so big and, and, and kind of so popular that every two-bit occult group in America would have wanted him to be a member at some point, you know what I mean? So he would have, in, in the 60s, you know, you would have got in these parties, you would have got, you know, Satanists and, you know, um, people in the and all sorts of stuff kind of milling around trying to recruit, recruit you into their kind of little cults and I'm sure the cults were much more kind of prolific and much more varied at, at that time so uh, I'm sure that he kind of spent a lot of time with those kind of people but I think it's, it's credit to him that he, he they wanted him and he never really needed them which I think was great about Jim Morrison you know he was his own um, his own master his own you know his own disciple so to speak um you know, and he was more of a figurehead. You know, he, he, he's the kind of guy who could have started a religion. He was, he's got more in common with, you know, um, Charles Manson than he does with, you know, Anton LaVey. So, um, so, and I think this this really sums it. This really gives you an idea of, of where Morrison's head's at in, in terms of storytelling and, you know, myth and, and magic and stuff like that. So I think anyone who's into, even vaguely into, you know, the occult or terrorism or that kind of element should really go and listen to that album because it, it gives you a great insight into um, you know, the, the thought processes of the, the, the main man behind the doors. Well, it's, it's a great choice for this episode, man. I really appreciate it. Do you, do you think we will um, cheapen the American Prayer if we play a, a section of it at the end of the episode? No, no, I think no. I think I think we we, we bow out with bird of prayer. I think it, it's a perfect kind of repetitive, almost prayer-like element of the. Uh, of the album which would be perfect for an outro so we'll, we'll end with Bird of Prey I think. lovely choice lovely choice um, we did have a guest scheduled um, for our what is hopefully a guest segment he unfortunately couldn't make it this time but I hope to have him back at some point thank you for listening I've certainly learned a lot this episode um, very insightful and as uh, as winter sets in and as the fog and the ice kind of creeps around this time of year, it's nice to settle into the uh, dark room somewhere and get a little bit creepy with uh, with some occult practices. Yeah, I think once we obviously we always intend to get people calling in um, once we're once we're recording episodes regularly and, and at certain times on, we get people to call in. And I think hearing maybe some people's you know real life experiences with 
the occult and things like Ouija boards and stuff. I, I think we can probably do a whole calling section with, you know, Ouija board experiences. I think would be great, you know. So I look forward to doing that. Thank you for listening if you've got this far. If you have any kind of stories of interactions with ghosts or aliens or the supernatural or Ouija boards or you've been possessed by King Pyman himself or anything of that sort, please do get in touch with us. We're going to have a uh, call-in chaos corner where we open up our third eye and let you guys uh, come in and we all expand our minds together and trade ideas. Um, So do keep an ear out for that. We're going to be announcing... Um, how to get in touch with us, how to join in these recordings live while we're doing them and join the conversation. Um, It's been an absolutely enlightening episode, my friend. Thank you very much for leading the way with this one, uh, uh, educating me and educating our listeners. Always a pleasure. Lovely. If you are struggling with your physical health, if you're struggling with your mental health, if you're struggling with your emotional health, uh, get in touch. We want to hear from you. Um, We are going to be putting these out regularly and i want to have a kind of um mental health well-being message to these things as well we've all got problems guys it doesn't matter what they are everyone's struggling with something you don't have to struggle alone join the instagram join the discord listen to our episodes and get in touch and be part of the conversation with us and hopefully we can all heal together as a unit and move forward from this terrible year into 2021 and onward even further and hopefully all help each other to flourish and grow as we do so amen good night jamie good night